Well, good evening, everyone. We are going to go ahead and begin right on time tonight. Uh, good evening to you all. Uh, a little bit warm in my uh, attic office this day. Um, my my two-year-old uh, thought it would be funny to turn on a space heater in my office right before I started class. So that's uh, always exciting and wonderful. Um, but as it is, we will make do with it. So if I start sweating, it's not because I'm nervous teaching about the second grade awakening it has a lot more to do with it is probably over hundred degrees in here right now. So, uh, not to worry though, got some ice water and I should be fine here for this. So, um, as we delve into the second grade awakening, I think one of the most, uh, awesome parts, uh, about looking into the history of the American church is that we get to, we get to pull apart so many things that start sounding familiar to us. Um, I, I think a lot of times people, when they study church history or when, they, uh, when they're first introduced to it, most of their interaction with church history is very uh, tenuous. Uh, there's not a whole lot of uh, familiarity to it. There's not a lot of people that remind us of us. You know, we go to church on Sunday it looks a certain way. It sounds a certain way. It has a certain feel to it. And then you go and study church history and you go, I don't, I don't really see anything that reminds me of church. And so it's important for us to kind of, uh, you know, take, take stock into all that's going on and the differences that are going to uh, continue to uh, develop into the church that you and I have grown up in, regardless of where you are. Um, a lot of the effects of the early 1800s uh, will certainly just sound start sounding a lot more familiar. Um, and so the overview we gave last time, uh, we're going to start back in uh, right to where we started there, and that is with what is called the second great awakening. Now, you know you've been you've been going along uh, with church history here. You know we went through the first great awakening. It had a certain feel to it. Uh, it was very um, it was kind of like step out into the church courtyard type feel to it. And even though, you know, some of these camp meetings were, or not camp meetings, but some of these uh, revival meetings were, you know, in the public park, or maybe they were outside. It wasn't, it wasn't in the sanctuary of the local assembly, but you would have the local minister or a visiting minister. You would have someone ordained that was leading out in these things, you know, uh, usually connected with more, um, what would be considered at the time more high theology and uh, it had a certain appeal to let's not be careless in our theology and our lives now that we're just in the new world. Um, the Second Great Awakening has a completely different feel to it altogether. The Second Great, Great Awakening is uh, quickly distancing itself from anything that reminds itself of the old world. Uh, Calvinism, uh, Geneva, uh, even Anglicanism uh, to a certain extent. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the political fervor of the day, the entire zeitgeist of what was going on in the early 1800s, late 1700s, um, really had a whole lot to do with the fact that America just became its own country. Now, we would like to think that separation of church and state has this effect or that effect. In reality, they play off of each other more often than not, no matter where you are. And so whether you're still in Europe or whether you are in the newly uh, minted United States of America, um, you're going to you're going to see the interplay between religion and politics in uh, a very uniquely different way now that we've come over to the Americas. Uh, it's not going to be the same as it was. It's not going to be 
uh, you know, for for God and King. It's not going to be like this. There, there is a certain Americanism. Uh, there's really not another term for it to the the types of Christianity that excel and explode into the new world. When I say Americanism, I think some people you know think of that as a derogatory term. I really don't, um, but it it really is more of a descriptive term in the way I'm using it. Uh, the focus on in, you know rugged individualism, uh, especially at that time, kind of a frontierist, um, you know, m- scratch out a living for yourself. I don't need any king. I don't need. I don't even necessarily need representatives, but if you're going to tax me, I might as well be able to have a say in what goes on. You know, that kind of um, not pursuing things of monarchies and um, and and honor. Not not that it was pursuing dishonor, but that it wasn't. That was not the high ideal. There was not this uh, this respect necessarily of things that came before it. There was actually quite a suspicion of things that came before it, and that that really. That really describes America. That also describes the types of Christianity that found fertile soil in that America of the late of late 1700s, early 1800s, just as uh, you know the very first generation after the Revolutionary War. So that's really what the time frame we're talking about here. The Second Great Awakening. If you're taking notes, uh, write it down. 1790-ish to about 1820, 25-ish. Um, obviously movements like this, there's no way to put hardened numbers on it. So you just kind of do the best that you can. It's about, it's about 30, 40 years of, of, uh, this kind of fervor and this type of revivalist mentality. And I think that's one of the first massive parts of this we need to talk about. And that is this concept of revivalism. We have talked for several weeks about different aspects leading up to the American Revolution that affected theology and affected the church. One of the massive ones is pietism. And really until the past couple of decades, this has gone uh, largely uh, largely muted in the way it's talked about in Western American church history classes. Um, but there's been a, a lot of decent work that's been done in exposing people like myself um, my teachers and things like this too, just how influential German pietism was in the early Americas and especially into the, the founding of what uh, you and I would know as evangelical churches. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit. Um, we'll talk about it more when we get to the 20th century, but pietism plays a, really an outhanded role in the Second Great Awakening. It's focus on personal holiness. Uh, it's focus on individual liberties um, on on this concept that uh, we have a uh, an ability to achieve unto certain levels of holiness, um, you know that really finds a lot of uh, a lot of ringing true to the uh, to the ears of the American mindset at the time. You know, if if prosperity is up to us, maybe so uh, spiritual success is as well. That kind of a uh, a concept that, you know, if I can come out here and scratch a living for myself in the physical world, what prevents such a thing to be true from the spiritual realm as well? I don't need God here. Why Why would I necessarily need, excuse me, I don't need king here. Why necessarily would I need God in order to develop uh, some of the spiritual graces, shall we say? And I'm not to say that 
people would look at that and go, oh, you know, God is of no help for sanctification whatsoever. Not, not to that extent, but there is a significant influence in this reality that we can help one another uh, achieve unto this holiness. Sanctification is something that we can work our way, work our way very hardly towards. Uh, and revival meetings and calling people to holinesses uh, and and even appealing to very emotional sides of of the the young Americans' psyche uh, really finds a lot of uh, a lot of traction here uh, in the 1790s and the uh, early 1800s. Um, the Second Great Awakening, again, you know, as we name these things, it 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 bears repeating. Um, you know, if you're going to call a movement an awakening, what are you implying about what came before it? They were asleep. And there was a lot of people that actually spoke in this exact way at the time. This isn't just us looking back on this and calling it the Second Great Awakening. There were people at the time saying, you know, not only are you all asleep, you are all fully unaware of not only how important this is, but of the necessity of social reforms, of the necessity of personal reforms and personal holiness, um, and all of this prepping for the reality that Christ will soon return. Now, if you hadn't uh, been paying attention and all of a sudden you heard that, you would just kind of like, wait, wait, what? Why, why, are we, why are we looking for the return of Christ so much? Well, this was kind of a very interesting aspect of what was going on in the Second Great Awakening was this a large emphasis on personal conversion, this large emphasis on revival meetings and and stoking up a spiritual fervor. Uh, one, it got so so common that there was places even in Western New York that were called the Burnt Over District. Everyone was just so sick and tired of hearing revival teaching after like thirty years of nonstop revivals. It's kind of like you know what if if we're not revived yet, I mean maybe maybe there's nothing left to bring back to life. Um, there was a lot of very emotional preaching styles being used uh, and the expansion of certain denominations and also the res- uh, the pulling back of other denominations. Really interesting stuff. So we're going to talk about all this tonight. And I think the Second Great Awakening really helps us understand um, what I entitled this episode to be, and that is the New American Christianity. Um I don't say it in 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 a way that is derogatory. I hope nobody hears that. Um, I'm trying to express to us what was so unique uh, about American Christianity uh, was that it became the the locus of any movement anywhere in the world, right? If something started over in Germany or something started over in Britain or something started over in uh, the Netherlands uh, with Christianity in the in the 18th and 19th century, it came to the Americas. It, and that didn't that wasn't just true for church or for theology that was true for the philosophies that was true for the political sciences of the day every theory every concept and everything funneled its way into the americas because here you don't have to fear retribution of having the wrong thought or of uh or of you know the local bishop not supporting your newly founded church or something like this here it's really as simple as, hey, I came over to Pennsylvania, you know, because of uh, the way Pennsylvania was set up. I found, you know, a few families that agree with me on this specific set of things that I just discovered out of the scriptures. Uh, what's to stop us from tearing down some of these trees, building up a church, put a steeple on the top of bell up in there, and we'll start ringing in church services. You see that? 
that wasn't possible back in Europe because you had a great deal of uh, of tie-in at this time between state and state churches. But when you come to the Americas, you can do that and nobody is going to tell you no, unless you are breaking some agreed upon law or encroaching upon somebody's land or somebody's claim somewhere. Um, you know, if you're trying to push something crazy like polygamy, yeah, okay, so we'll chase you out just like we did the Mormons. But if you're going to stay somewhat orthodox, and even if you're radical, even if you're a radical reformer, even if you're, you know, Catholic, for instance, we will tolerate that. We'll live next to one another. We'll not go to war with one another over these theological issues. But at the end of the day, when we when we started out this journey as the new nation of America, all of these things coming into here, the, the real question uh, comes in, are we diluting or are we spreading Christianity? And this was the concern among a lot of people at the time uh, that were involved in the Second Great Awakening, that there was uh, there was a lot of religious diversity, uh, you know, due to the tolerant nature of the United States compared to Europe. Now, not everyone is looking at that as a good or a bad thing. It was just trying to understand how is it that we handle this? Um, you know, how do we build this society? And so you'll see the Second Great Awakening will uh, will usher in a great deal of social reform movements, uh, things like Sunday school. You will see things, um, you know, Sunday school, for instance, was just brought over from Britain. It was an idea there. And it was brought into the Americas to, it, it was called school for a reason. It actually started out not only just using the scriptures to teach, but it was also math and literacy, uh, how to read, uh, how to write, um, all the kind of the normal aspects that we would see of school. And it would just happen on Sunday, and it would be churches that were doing it. Um, there was a great deal that was going on here that shapes the American identity and the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about um, our spot in history, the way we think about the future specifically. So let's kind of get into that. Um, much of the uh, much of the first celebrations of the uh, revolution and its success in America. Um, really started to be tempered quickly. There was a number of Christians that were uh, preaching a very dystopian concept about the future, um, cultural decline, moral decay. Um, now, some of this was true. Some of this was just the reality of frontier life. Some of this was also just the reality that anyone could come to the Americas now. You know, it was uh, relatively easy to immigrate to uh, a new country like this, especially when there was plenty of land to be had, and we wanted to push over the Appalachian Mountains and expand out our um, our statehood, manifest destiny, everything else that we talked about there. Especially when gold is discovered out in the uh, out in the California area, you know, in the 1840s, all that kind of stuff uh, is coming. So this this whole concept is then married with this other concept in theology at the time, which is. The church worldwide really hasn't uh, solidified itself very well. It hasn't handled its uh, its disagreements very well. Um, we can do it better here. And so there's a very, everything outside of America uh, really can't handle theology very well. We are going to figure out how to uh, live next to one another. We're going to figure out how to interact with society. You know what? We can just, in certain aspects and certain places, we can just build society from scratch. And so all of this 
is going to start into this very exceptionalism uh, that that becomes what is America. This idea that if you can dream it, you can build it. If you do it, you can accomplish it. And that falls right into uh, some of the practices of the church here in the Americas early on here. Uh, there was there was an increasing desire then to be a voice uh, for the world uh, as far as for uh, theology, as far as for the church is concerned about our future. Um, even the fact that in 2023, I'm still sitting here in New York State, in America right now, talking about church history, um, you know, trying to understand how a worldwide audience would actually hear me talking about my own country's history. Um, you know, trying to keep that stuff in mind is difficult. Uh, not everyone thinks about America the same way. Not everyone thinks about theology and church history the same way. But the reason why we focus so much on America in the early 1800s is because all the changes that are going on, the massive shifts that are going on in Protestantism, which is obviously my main focus as a Protestant myself, um, is undeniably happening in the Americas in the early 1800s. The, the stuff that comes out of America in the 19th century in America is, is, is just on a level unseen anywhere else. People are creating new concepts. They are creating new ideas. And no one can really come up and say, no, we have to learn how to have an economy of ideas that, that, that uh, goes back and forth and challenges one another. And at the end of the day, we still have to be neighbors. It was just such a new concept. It's not to say that it was good or bad. It's to say it was a description of what happened and it affected theology in a really specific way. And there's certain theologies, I'll give you an instance, right? There's certain theologies that just don't fit with the American concept of thinking. And one of those, which is why Second Great Awakening really was very different than the First Great Awakening, is that Calvinism, this idea of, of God's sovereignty, of, of his choosing us before we were born. It does not fit with the standard American concept of, of unique special liberty. Uh, there, there is, there is a, a, in the second great awakening, a very decided, a very preached against directly intended movement away from Calvinist theologies that will distance us from Anglicanism that will distance us from the reform movement, from Presbyterianism, really from the Northeast where congregational and more Presbyterian um, set up churches would really reside. Um, you're going to see the Second Great Awakening pushing much more towards uh, places like Western New York um, and then pushing really, it gains its traction in the early 1800s uh, when crossing the Appalachian Mountains, places like Kentucky, places like Ohio um, and Tennessee, those, those, those places that were still you know, not states yet. They were starting to understand uh, kind of their own identities and their uniqueness because Ohio isn't Kentucky and Kentucky isn't Tennessee. Um, and they're all going to have a, a unique and different way of interacting with uh, with these things. But so the distancing from Calvinist theologies and, and the embracing of much more free will, uh, choosing of salvation uh, necessitates a focus on our personal responsibility. But it also necessitates, and I'll say this as a pastor who stands in front of people, and I'll say this also as, as somebody who would definitely be much more on the Calvinist side of things, um, to have a much uh, a much more you know personal responsibility grasp of it, 
if if I'm preaching and I'm trying to convince somebody to become a Christian, it largely depends on me to convince that person. If I'm going to look work with a more Arminian uh, point of view, and and this bears out in the Second Great Awakening because the way they handled evangelism was very different. Uh, it 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 involved significant emotional appeals. Uh, it involves a significant amount of uh, anxiety. Uh, and, and I don't, again, say this is in a derogatory manner. They literally had a bench called the anxious bench, uh, that was up in front of the church. Uh, Charles Finney, uh, designed this, he put it right up in front of the church. So if somebody was either, you know, thinking about becoming a Christian or rededicating their life or any of these other things, we're going to sit them up there. And then we'll, everyone in present would devote their prayer and their focus on that person, like all their spiritual energy, focusing on this person to, to, to get them to make the right decision, um, that kind of stuff. So when I say it increases the anxiety, that was something they said about themselves. That wasn't, that's not necessarily something I'm putting on this. Um, pietism was a huge part of this massive part of this, uh, a focus on, uh, individual Christians, the, the individualizing of the, uh, the Christian life found very fertile soil in the early America mind or the early American mind. Um, Calvinism, as I said before, does not sit well here in the same way. And so that really means that we start to see denominational differences, right? What we had over in Europe was uh, what we call denominations really uh, had borders. You know, if you were German, you were going to be Lutheran. I mean, that was just kind of the way of it. Uh, if you were French, you were either chased out in the 1600s as a French Calvinist, or you stayed back as a Catholic. Uh, if you were Spanish, you were Catholic. That's kind of the end of that story. Um, Italian, kind of the same story. If you were uh, English, you were Anglican. Um, you could have been Puritan Anglican. You could have been Separatist Anglican, right? Or you could have been um, just classical Anglican. But at the end of the day, it's Church of England, right? These these churches have borders. Uh, if you were in the Netherlands, it was Dutch Reform, right? And so that was the European way of doing stuff. In America, you don't really have that. You have different denominations. And in multiple cities, you will have centers of each church literally across the street from one another. I know the church that I serve in right now, uh, we meet at a, a, a crossroads of an intersection of, of two different roads. And between us, we have uh, uh, an Episcopalian church, a Baptist church, Presbyterian church, and a non-denominational church, all on three corners, uh, right there, right all next to each other. Um, you know, you could you can visit each church without crossing anybody else's land. We all border each other. Um, that's that's a very uniquely American thing uh, at this point, especially. And so you'll get you'll get denominational lines being drawn, not at borders, but you'll have them being drawn at theological concepts. And so you'll see, you know, different camps being set up. The Presbyterians and the Congregationalists are not going to be overly involved in the Second Great Awakening. Uh, they're going to they're gonna pull back from this. One, there's a great deal of concept uh, of responsibility to be in a controlled atmosphere or in a uh, more of a, uh, an intended building for such things. But they're also much more of a Calvinistic mindset. Second Great Awakening did not come with those assumptions. Um, and besides also in Presbyterianism and Congregationalism, you're going to have a much more, how to put it, 
a much more long focus of the nature of the church and of liturgy. Uh, you can't, uh, they're, they're very big, long ships. Let's put it that way with very small rudders to turn uh, a Presbyterian denomination towards something completely different than it's ever pursued before is going to be very difficult. And anyone who's ever served on a uh, Presbyterian committee, uh, I grew up Presbyterian, so I can speak a little bit to that. Uh, a Presbyterian committee knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but even more strong than that is the, the uh, basis of church polity in Presbyterian congregationalist churches. It's a very, it's a very strong way to, uh, to ensure history continues uh, on a trajectory that it intended. That's probably a nice way to say that. Um, times of flux, for instance, times of change. Can you say amen, brother? Yeah, Ken, our, our resident Presbyterian, yes. Uh, times of flux, times of change tend to cause a tightening of the ranks uh, in, in Presbyterian and Congregationalist churches in the early 1800s. Uh, it doesn't cause open-mindedness. It actually causes a binding up. And so you'll get more separation between denominations. Um, and the Northeast, this is one of the ways that the Northeast really became very uh, decidedly Presbyterian, Congregationalist, and kind of almost has this old school mindset to it um, with regards to these things. But if you, uh, if you go to some of the more uniquely American denominations, things that started here, the Methodists, for instance, um, which technically started in London, uh, with Charles Wesley, but, or with John Wesley and Charles Wesley, but came here so quick that it really doesn't even, I mean, let's put it in this way, right? In, in the late 1700s, uh, I believe it was 1790, 1780, I forget exactly when this stat is from. There was 20 Methodist churches worldwide. And like they were all in the US. But by the 1840s, there was over 16,000. That should show you how quick that happened. The Methodist church became the largest denomination in the Americas by the mid 1800s. But it didn't even start until America was a country. So Presbyterianism, though, for instance, came from Scotland from the, you know, from the mid 1500s, late 1500s, you know, so these kind of more old school ways of thinking, these old um, large denominations, international denominations, they don't really know how to gain traction in America. America is such a unique thing. And so you need denominations that will change with the tide. Methodists, Right. So John Wesley is involved in the first great awakening. And by the way, not a Calvinist guy, um, but um, but could work side by side with people like George Whitfield, uh, who definitely was a classical Anglican. Right. Um, and so but Methodism, as it began, uh, was a uniquely styled American denomination, if you will, uh, much more focused on rugged individualism than deep time. Uh, obviously, because the you know, Methodist concepts could only look back two generations at this point. You know, John Wesley had only recently passed, so there's not a there's not a, a deep time history to this. There's not a uh, we have a great tradition that's based back in you know Germany. It wouldn't be the same way that a Lutheran would look at this, for instance. Um, so Methodists and then Baptists as well. Um, now Baptists, you know, can look back to their origin back to the uh, an offshoot of the Westminster Divines in the mid-1600s, but you really don't get a solidly Baptist influence 
um, you know, overtaking uh, England, for instance. That's not that's not happening. Uh, and so Baptists were always kind of on the outskirts of everything until Rhode Island, which is where they came through. If you ever wanted to go read about that, and um, Baptists had also this very individual focus um, aspect. They also had a very uh, Arminian um, uh, concepts, or at least vein through them, that allowed them. Now, classically Baptist, not so much, but but at this time, the ones who were settling in the Americas were able to to have this kind of same concept of individualism, uh, deeply affected by Pietism. The Methodists were massively so. Um, John Wesley himself spoke very highly of Pietism with regards to this stuff in founding Methodism. Um, and hence the name method of living Methodism. Um, and there was much opportunism in the country, just politically speaking, just uh, culturally speaking, to expand westward. Well, if you're going to expand westward, think about this just logistically. If you've got an old, slow-moving denomination, like say Presbyterianism, Congregationalism, things like this, if you or Anglicanism, even uh, even Catholicism, for instance. To be able to, uh, you know, establish Maryland, for instance, is one thing. But to to chase down people like Daniel Boone in Kentucky and Tennessee and try to establish churches while people are moving out there with covered wagons, that is a completely different practical and logistical challenge than the European church had ever seen. The only ones that ever came close to it, I would imagine, uh, would be the Jesuits in uh, Central and South America and a lot of their missionary endeavors. But but even with that, the goal wasn't to chase down fellow countrymen that were looking to build a log home somewhere. And basically, uh, the only thing that brings people together is a general store that's, you know, a, a, a five-hour journey. You know, that that's a very new difficulty for the church. And the, the ones that are going to be able to address that are going to be the ones that can that can stay on their feet, sometimes literally, uh, and so you'll get the the uh, bringing in of, of brand new uh, habits, uh, brand new ways of doing things, things like uh, circuit riding preachers, uh, this concept of frontier faith. Like uh, when we go out there, this is God sending us forward. It's not um, it's not dependent on on the church sending us forward. There's like a, uh, um, you know, a, a uh, obviously true nature to this uh, self-evidence. Uh, based on these things. And what really, really helps the Methodists and the Baptists is really their lack of age when it comes to polity. You know, or uh, let's just put it the let's put it the real way. There's no red tape. Right? If 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 I'm a Methodist preacher and I got a horse and I know of seven different churches that don't have any pastors uh out in southern Ohio, northern Kentucky, uh, and they're willing to pay me, you know, a hundred dollars a week. Uh, at this one and a hundred dollars a week at that one and a hundred dollars a week at that one. And all I got to do is ride my horse between them and visit them on each Sunday. And, and I'll ride that circuit. Um, nobody can tell me no. <laughs> and that's, that's, is if that's not the most American way to think about it, um, it just is, you know, who's going to stop us. Right. That was kind of the issue that they got in the trouble with, with Britain. Right. Okay. You're the colonies right? What was this? The Stamp Act, I think it was. You know, you're the colonies, but you belong to Britain. So when you go to the Spice Islands, when you come back to Boston or when you come back to New York Harbor or whatever, uh, you're going to have to pay taxes that, uh, you know, on what you have and send that back to London. 
the question comes back, well, you know, not only why, but how are you going to know? I remember when I was in, I was in American history class and I actually asked that question uh, when I was in uh, my undergraduate for, for history, I was taking a, taking a class on this. I just raised my hand. I was like, how would, how would, you know, the British crown even know that this, uh, this ship went to the Spice Islands and they came back to, you know, South Carolina or something. And he looked at me and he says, ah, the deeply American question that led to the revolution. How would they know? Uh, and, and more than that, how could you ever set up a bureaucracy to be able to do this? And the answer is you can't. So in the absence of bureaucracy, in the absence of denominations that are built on long history like that, you get the much more new on the block uh, way to do things. Methodism Baptists can adapt to the frontier in a way that nobody else really could. Um, and so you'll get you'll get things like Kentucky camp meetings in the Second Great Awakening. Um, by the way, notice notice where we are now, right? When we talked about the First Great Awakening, we were talking about New York, New Jersey, and things like this. Now we're talking about Ohio and Kentucky and Tennessee. Um, this is just out west. This is how we go. Um, uh, I will tell you, uh, I, I don't know if any of you in, uh, listening have ever been to a revival meeting, but I grew up in the South and I got to go to one once. Um, and it was at a Baptist church. Uh, it was quite the experience. Um, and, uh, something I, I don't think I'll ever forget the, uh, uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a church service where you know that the person who's speaking and giving the message has given that exact message a hundred other times. Um, uh, but it was, it was painfully on, uh, obvious. And there was, there was a lot of attempts to appeal to the emotional side of people, uh, you know, singing just as I am 27 times over again. I think there's that many verses to it actually. Um, and, uh, you know, if, you know, it, it kind of got to this, um, if anyone wants to become a Christian, well, if nobody wants to become a Christian, okay. So does anyone want to rededicate their life? Anyone want to submit to the call to ministry? It's like, it, it, it kept on kind of going out and getting expanded and very emotional, very, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just give you an instance. I, I, I distinctly remember this guy, uh, who, uh, who was pre preaching here about this. He was talking about, uh, a revival meeting he was at once when somebody wanted to come forward and then he didn't come forward. And, uh, he was talking to a friend of his about it. He regretted it, but then he got hit by a truck later that night and he never got to come forward. Right. I mean, that, that's not a theological appeal, you know, and then he died. Right. And so the, the implication is, uh, this might be your last night here. I mean, that, that is for, well, I'll just say it from my perspective. That's, that's very little more than emotional manipulation. It's, it's trying to do it with a good intention. Uh, but it is not a, Hey, here's the reality of the word of God says, here's what salvation is. Here's who Christ is. Um, while it will say these things, its main focus is going to be on getting you to make a decision. Uh, decisionism is a huge part of this. Uh, and becomes an absolutely massive part of of American Christianity going forward. Trying to get people to make a decision for Christ, um, that kind of becomes the 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 normalcy of it. With a lot of this, um, Methodism specifically, uh, though a lot of it is found in the Second Great Awakening, um, it's not all about revival meetings and uh, and coming to Christ and and come to Jesus moments and anxious benches. There's there's a lot more to it than this. Um, there's a lot that socially 
was being done uh, in in what I think can be inarguably good movements, um, uh, aspects of abolition, for instance. Uh, the Civil War does not work out the way it does in the, in the uh, mid to late 1800s without Methodism being against slavery. Um, and thankfully, John Wesley, uh, very early on, obviously the founder of Methodism, uh, wrote against slavery in the late 1700s, very vehemently as as vehemently as john wesley ever writes he wrote vehemently against this and it really set up for methodism to be a huge factor uh for abolition movements uh in the in the 1800s in america um and so you know you can just see how how deeply that affects the way america thinks of itself uh even down to today and to realize that church history has been there right alongside of it, uh, working on certain aspects uh, and doing certain ways um, that are that are different. Um, but again, you know, with Methodism, obviously that rule is not hard and fast across the across the board. Uh, same with Baptists. Um, there's no central control in the denominations that find fertile soil in America. There's not going to be. Uh, a way to do the checks and balances that you know the new federal government had all built in. Uh, you're not going to have that in the types of churches that find a find a home here. Um, and, and the the real uh, fun part about some of this stuff, and and the concerning part about some of it, uh, is that not it's not just what would you consider more classically considered Christian movements, but any movement can find traction here in the Americas in the early 1800s, right? I mean, I'm sitting in Binghamton, New York right now. I'm 10 minutes away from where uh, Mormonism believes that the Aaronic priesthood was reestablished. That's right down here on the Susquehanna River, uh, right across the border in Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And that was, you know, 1830s, right? So that's in the middle of all of this too, is it's not just... Christian things that are being affected. We have distinctly American religions, which Mormonism is the kind of quintessential push the limits, do whatever I want to do American religion. Uh, and, you know, I mean, why basically the church itself went out and made its own state uh, that became Utah, by the way. Um, originally, the state of Utah was being argued to be named Deseret. Uh, a, a version of heaven in in Mormon theology because everyone who was moving to Utah was Mormon uh, back when they were founding the state. Uh, you get movements that are a little bit more uh, Christian uh, than Mormonism. Mormonism is not Christian, uh, by the way. Um, you'll get the you'll get the Shaker movement, which is an offshoot of of Christianity as well. The Shaker movement, uh, also known as, and listen to this the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing. The entire movement is focused on this imminent return of Jesus any day now. This is going to be something that um, was already kind of in the water uh, in America. But, um, you know, this, this idea of this imminent return of Jesus any moment is very, very early on in America's history. Uh, the Shaker movement, for instance, moved to the United States in 1774. Uh, you know, when I say it moved to the United States, I literally mean its founder and the small group of followers that she had, um, a woman named Ann Lee, uh, moved to the United States in 1774 
uh, because there was a way to to found and establish uh, little communal societies. Uh, but this this whole concept, uh, by the way, they're called shakers because of a very uh, physically expressive way of worshiping. Let's say, let's put it that way. Um, and uh, you know, it was it was this idea that they could be self sufficient. Uh, it was this idea that they could um, interpret the scriptures any which way they they thought proper to do so. Uh, and as far as for this kind of level of individuality, not only is it influenced by piety, but it's also influenced by just the American zeitgeist of, of, of the day. It was just the spirit of the age type of thing. Uh, they were known for their commitment to things like simplicity, uh, pacifism, uh, which they believe that, that Christians ought to be pacifists, uh, which led to very strange ideals uh, in the in the uh, late 1700s, or at least strange theories about their ideals. Uh, one of the most harmful aspects to their movement, I would say, would be celibacy. Um, they interpreted the biblical call to be like the angels in heaven uh, as to not engage in relations or procreation or any such thing. Uh, and so um, men and women shared leadership roles equally and performed equal labor. Uh, very... Um, very millenarian, very focused on the second coming of Christ at any point. The idea of no um, no procreation leads to mean the only new members that can be gained are through really through conversion. Uh, that's a very hard way to to keep a movement going. Uh, and uh, to this day, they've all but vanished from history. But um, it's it's kind of one of these just kind of quintessential spotlights of early uh, American Christian movements um, because you'll have this this uh, emotional worship is is the higher ideal um, you'll have an individual focus of faith uh, an individual life my individual piety no matter what it costs me um, even if it's good things that God has made it, it can be set aside um, and then soon Christ is coming. Now, that that sentiment is still in American Christianity very broadly. It's always been a part of American Christianity. Um, it so far has always been wrong. Uh, I don't I don't mean to say that in a derogatory way. I just mean to say we had many, many movements and have had many, many movements. That have that have tried to express that Jesus is coming back any day now. Um, uh, my only hope is that if you do hold to that, please hear me out on this. Um, that has much more to do with the culture in which we reside than it does any actual biblical interpretation. Uh, this this really is is a hard thing to wrap one's head around uh, because it kind of affects across the board. And that's how we know it's a cultural thing. It doesn't come from any specific teaching. You're not going to look at the, you know, Westminster Catechism and see the imminent return of Christ any moment. You're not going to see that there. Uh, you're not going to see predictions. You're not going to see uh, numerology. You're not going to see any of that. That's that is much more Americanism. Um, you know, new world stepping into a, a whole new era. Uh, it's going to come with prophetic things that are wrong. 
Uh, and it happens all over the place. Now, if you want to just hold that Christ can come back at any minute, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about these movements that are, uh, are are addressing this reality that Jesus is going to come back himself in 1843 or, or 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. Like the, That's what I'm talking about. Those types of things are as American as apple pie. Uh, in fact, more American than apple pie because apples come from Kazakhstan. But it's, it's as American as it gets um, because everything here uh, it is, is set up in such a way. It's built out of the scientific revolution. We have enlightenment ideals. We have theological concepts, but then we have manifest destiny where God is obviously blessing or at least paving the way for us to, to take possession of this entire continent. That kind of a concept uh, really works its way into theology pretty efficiently. Um, we talked a little bit last week about William Miller <laughs> someone that I'll only uh, address a little bit in uh, in passing today, but this idea of Christ returning in 1843, it's going to be May 22nd, 1843, it's going to happen. Uh, you can hear this terminology. Everyone should wake up. Everyone should uh, come and submit. Everyone, the time is short. Um, you know, um, October 22nd, the second shot at it, uh, 1844 was the great disappointment. Um, it, it, it got so feverish in the way people would look at it, but that they were actually convinced that Jesus was stuck in the clouds and we had to pray him down. Um, this kind of stuff really gets into the minds of people. And when it doesn't come to pass, like every false prophetic movement or every false teaching, people are hurt. And it, it affects the view of the church. It affects uh, all the good stuff that people are doing. Uh, it cost, casts a bad light on a lot of that kind of stuff, and it, it's it's frustrating to see, um, you know, and it's, you know, especially and every time, you know, the false uh, the false sense of it, uh, or or every time it doesn't actually happen, uh, the answer of the false teacher is to always come back and say, well, you know, Christ did come back, but you know, only spiritually. Uh, so you know now, you, and then they go right back to the revivalism. You know, you just gotta you know um, repent and keep keep trying to do better works. You keep trying to do better things. Um, that's always the way I did it. Harold Camping was the most recent one that uh, did that. But again, as American as it gets. Um, and that kind of apocalypticism, the the idea that the end of the world is coming uh, imminently and soon, a lot of it has uh, its tracings to the radical reformations of the 1500s and, and the fact that they uh, being persecuted minorities found themselves in the Americas and in very influential places. Um, but apocalypticism uh, really also was connected to the fears of the moral decay and social changes around them. Anytime you have massive social upheaval, you get people talking about Jesus coming back. Uh, because one, I think it really expresses a, a deep desire that people have. Um that that Christ be the answer to our social ills right now, not at some point in the distant future. Uh, liberation theology of the 1970s and 60s will do this directly uh, when they talk about salvation, uh, connecting it not with a future thing, but with a present day uh, liberation. Um, but it really comes down to also when you start, and here I got to put a plug in for historical theology, and some of my friends that are historical theologians, I uh, got to plug in, put a plug in for them. Uh, when you start interpreting current events 
uh, as signs of the end times, it's usually a good sign that you have separated from your historical moorings. Uh, we've we've seen that, and we've learned not to do that um, because it's not that simple. And and we are always very myopic, very nearsighted when it comes to our current events, uh, thinking that because something's bad in my corner of the world or something's good in my corner of the world, this can somehow teach me what God is up to worldwide and universe-wide. Um, that's very nearsighted. Uh, and it's it's something that we, we have to wrestle against. Uh, and honestly, I think teaching church history is one of those things that helps us uh, to do that. I know it's helped me for sure. Um, but I mean, we, we have this kind of concept today. In fact, some of the best selling Christian books of all time were the left behind series that teach this, uh, imminent return of Christ at any moment. And you have bumper stickers to that end and everything. Again, this is not what the church worldwide has been focusing on for the past, you know, 18 or 180 years that that's been distinctly an American thing. Um, and it's, it's shaped a lot of American culture and values uh, and, and evangelicalism. Um, and here's one of the things too, when a lot of these things did not come to pass in the, uh, in the early 1800s, mid 1800s, a lot of the focus, which had been kind of this fixing the culture in anticipation of Christ's return, uh, that whole focus in the early 1800s, uh, turned away from fixing the culture in preparation for Christ's return to just fixing the culture for its sake. And so you'll get a lot of movements in the church uh, in the Americas that will just move away from connecting social change with ushering in the millennium. It will instead just move to ushering in social change. And you're you're going to see churches pivot enormously away from the reason why we're doing something to just continuing to do what we're doing, but with a completely different mindset in place. And so you'll get entire denominations that are going to crop up that are just going to be focused on doing social good for social good's sake. And that's it. Uh, again, not, not describing whether this is good or bad. I'm just simply trying to describe that's not the way it was done originally. That wasn't its intention. Uh, much of the intention, it's kind of like the scientific revolution, right? Scientific revolution for many people, people like Sir Francis Bacon, um, you know, and, and others uh, that were that were looking to establish uh, an increase of knowledge in order to usher back the, the coming of Christ. You say, where would you even get an idea like that? Well, one, uh, Daniel chapter 12 addresses this concept that Men will go to and fro and knowledge will increase and then the end will come. And you say, well, you know, I mean, that's that's a pretty obscure verse. Well, it was not as obscure for Sir Francis Bacon to actually put that on the cover of one of his books uh, as, as arguing for why the scientific advancements and revolutions of their day might actually usher in the return of Christ, the end of the world. And so if we are going to connect the scientific revolution towards that, and then the scientific revolution moves on and moves past this idea that it's going to usher in the return of Christ, the same thing is going to happen with the Second Great Awakening and the apocalypticism of the day. We're going to do social change to prep the world for the coming of Christ, and Christ doesn't come back, and so, well, now we'll just continue to do social change. And so now we find ourselves in a world that is tired of revivalism, that is enormously wealthy 
America becomes wealthy so quick. Um, and, uh, and so you've got this scientific advanced, uh, culture, uh, that is focused on the return of Christ that didn't happen in the way they were told it was going to happen. They have all these plans for social reform to remake a society, to design it after Christian ideals, but really with no goal in mind, uh, anymore. Um, Mary, you ask a question. You say, so they thought that they could hasten the return of Christ. Yes. Directly. Many of them stated that straight up. Now, some would say that they could um, they could predict the exact day. The Millerites said that. Um, but many people just looked at doing social reform as a way to prep the world for the coming of Christ. They would not have what has uh, become a much more pessimistic view these days, which is everything's going to go really, really bad, and then the end will happen and Jesus will return. At this point in history, the early 1800s, you would have much more of a progressive mind towards uh, society. Everything's going to get better and better and better, and then Christ will come. And so anything that we can make it better will hasten it up. So yes, there were several people that held to a very hardened concept of when Jesus was coming back, but the majority of people involved uh, at this time would have overtly held to the idea that they could hasten the return of Christ. Yes, through social reform. Uh, prison reform, um, <laughs> just structuring society better. Uh, you know, every little bit helps, you know, every little bit helps. And so let's do our part type thing. Um, and, and you will get, you will get everything kind of gloms onto this movement, including uh, uh, suffrage movements and uh, abolitionist movements. And so there's going to be a lot of people that are against slavery because they view it as something in one way or another, holding back Christ from returning. So yeah, it's, it's a very unique thing. It's, it's kind of hard to appreciate how much of an overwhelming thought it is not living in that world at this point. Um, You know, at least the world I grew up in, as far as for looking at the return of Christ, the relationship of Christ to the society was that society is going to crash and burn and we're done with this place and Jesus is going to pull us out of it. I think a lot of people and, you know, know what I'm describing from that. Um, but, but you go back 180 years, no one's really talking about how everything's going to get bad. And then Christ is going to return because everything's going so good. I mean, if you're living in America and sorry, my British brothers who are listening to this, if you're living in America, we just kicked the British butt twice, right? We, we won the, the war of the revolutionary war. We won the war of 1812 for all intents and purposes. And, Everything's going great. We're rich. We just found a whole bunch of gold on the other side of the continent, which, by the way, we now have claims for. We bought the Louisiana Purchase. We had, we expanded out all the way across the Sierra Nevadas, all the way out to California. We found a bunch of gold out there. What do we need Europe for? And and that's kind of the, the whole feel of this. Nobody's really looking at society and going, everything's going to get worse and worse and worse, and then the crisis can come back. It's everything's going so great. So the, the natural progression of all of these things, uh, you know, life expectancy is going up. Infant mortality is going down. Um, you know, prison reforms are going in. Uh, you got all sorts of concept of, of, of appealing to the inner light in people so that we can actually not just put them in prison for punishment. We can actually put them in prison to reform them. That is a theological argument. Uh, and so, yes, that's my long way of answering. Yes, people actually believe they could hasten the return of Christ by making society fit uh, for the return of Christ. Basically, 
you know, making the bed and, and, and vacuuming the floors before a guest comes over that kind of a concept. Um, and so when there's moral decay or when there's, um, social challenges, uh, people become very despondent about it. And it really helps prop up this, this concept of, of revivalism, uh, for a long time, um, until people just get burned out by it. And, uh, I mean, literally call it the burned over districts, wherever it goes on, you know, past the 1820s. Um, but, uh, with all of that, um, you know, there's there's a lot of good that comes out of this, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of challenge that comes out of this. But uh, that I mean, that's kind of the story of America as well. Uh, there's a lot of good that's done. There's a lot of bad that comes out of it, and you, you make your best with the patchwork that it is. And and I think that if there's anything else that could well describe uh, this new type or this new quest of American Christianity, uh, it is a quilt a patchwork of all sorts of beliefs, hopefully held together by orthodoxy, but sometimes not. Uh, and it gets challenging on a lot of different points. Um, but yes, thank you guys for the questions. Thank you for your time and attention. Uh, we're going to call it in right there and, uh, and we'll be back next week. Uh, Lord's blessings to you all. Uh, I hope I didn't offend anyone. And if I did, well, you can come back next week and ask me some questions about it. Um, Lord's blessings to you all. Uh, God's grace be with you and you are very welcome. Mary, thank you.